This is Notoriously Episcopalian. My name is Kelly Hudlow. This is a podcast of sermons and musings all about the Christian faith and especially about being an Episcopalian. This is a sermon for the 20th Sunday after Pentecost, October 10th, 2021, offered at the Church of the Messiah in Heflin, Alabama. The principal text for the sermon is Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31, the wealthy young man who comes to Jesus to ask what he must do to inherit eternal life. May I speak in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I have for a long time had an affection for St. Francis of Assisi. Um, And I am not alone in my affection for St. Francis. When you look at the sale of books and religious art and statues, St. Francis is generally considered the most popular and well-known saint. Even in our own garden out behind the church here, you will find a picture of St. Francis with a couple of bunny rabbits and a squirrel on his shoulder. St. Francis has never quite left our public consciousness, but he became of particular note when several years ago, the newly elected Pope of the Roman Catholic Church emerged and announced that he was taking the name of Francis as Pope. When the Pope chose to become Francis I, Many in the world that watch such religious things thought, well, the Pope is sending a signal that things were going to be different. Now, most of us know that St. Francis is the patron saint of pets. So it might be confusing why all of these religious folks were like, well, the Pope is going to change things up because he's decided to take the name of Francis. Perhaps it meant that the Pope was going to start inviting dogs and cats to church. But when you know the fuller story of St. Francis, you realize that it has a lot more to do than just pets. See, when Francis was born in Italy, he was born to a family with some wealth and power in their communities. His father was a wealthy silk merchant, a cloth merchant. He got to travel around and, and buy beautiful silks to bring back to be made into fine clothes. Growing up, Francis was really good at liking nice things and at spending his father's money. He also decided that he wanted the glory of going to war and being a knight. And so when a sort of small level conflict occurred nearby, off to war he went. But he got hurt while he was there and returned home and was injured and took a while to recover and he was disappointed because these ideas of his youthful life full of glory and honor were sort of dashed and here he was working for his father's business selling cloth. Now the nice part about working for your father who is very good at his business is that Francis continued to enjoy a life of wealth. But something was missing. So one summer day in 1205, Francis is coming back from running an errand for his father. He's hot. The sun is out. He sees this small little church a couple of miles outside of the city walls, and he goes inside. The church is dark and cool. 
It is abandoned largely. It stood in a state of disrepair. The paint on the ceiling was fading. Things were sort of crumbling around him. There was grass growing in the windowsill. But above the altar was still this painted crucifix, and the image of Christ was very visible. And this crucifix was painted in such a style that pretty much wherever you sat in the church, Christ was looking at you. And so Francis sat in the church to rest. And in this sort of moment of rest and quiet, Francis heard the voice of Jesus say, Francis, don't you see that my house is being destroyed? Go then and rebuild it for me. Now Francis, who at this point had been focused on glory and status and wealth, suddenly faced a challenge that was both humbling and demanding all at the same time to rebuild this little church. Now, I think fortunate for us, Francis was not a theologian. Like, he's not a scholar. He didn't go and write some big tome about this, you know, epiphany moment that he had in the church. Instead, how he described it was that Christ was speaking to him in a tender voice. And that upon hearing that, he felt a mysterious change in himself. Now, Francis' initial response was he went and got some of his father's cloth and took it to a neighboring town and sold it and brought the money back. But small towns being the way they are, people had heard that Francis had taken his father's stuff and gone and sold it. And so the priest didn't really want anything to do with the money that Francis showed up with, knowing that there was going to be trouble from this. And there was, right? When Francis's dad comes back, he's not happy about Francis taking stuff, nor is he happy that his son, who's supposed to take over his business, is now having this sort of religious experience in a church, and he goes to some really extreme measures to try to bring Francis back into the fold and to return to the family business to the point where he finally sues his son in court, which at this time, this particular court was presided over by the local bishop, and so they come to court and the whole town is there and Francis listens to his father plead the case against him, how Francis took the property that didn't belong to him and sold it, how he wanted his son to come back home and be part of his father's business. And Francis knew at that moment that he had to decide between what his father on earth wanted and what that tender voice that he had heard in that church said to him. So Francis exits for a moment, and in a very dramatic fashion, perhaps only not known to young people, he returns stark naked with his clothes folded up that belonged to his father and handed them to the bishop and said, I only have one father now, and that is God, and I give up all my wealth and privilege and status because I want to rebuild God's church. Now, the scene that happens next is actually depicted in a lot of sort of Western art, is that the bishop, in that moment, seeing Francis now in abject poverty, naked in front of him, covers him with his cloak. And Francis is then taken into the protection of God's house. From that moment on, Francis would live in complete poverty. He would rely on the protection of God and the hospitality of the community. He did rebuild that church just outside the city walls. 
People came and wanted to be part of his community. He founded a religious order that is still with us today, the Franciscans. And monks since the 1200s have taken vows of poverty and charity and followed in the way of Francis. In a way that was a way to follow Jesus that was radical in its self-emptying. And not just monks, nuns would come. Sister uh, Claire, St. Claire would come later and found an order of Franciscan nuns that would shockingly continue to live with a vow of poverty when most nuns did not do that. And even in the early years, there were people out in the world that decided not to go become monks, but they wanted to live the life of St. Francis. And so while they didn't impoverish themselves and take a vow of poverty, they did take a vow to live simply the way the Franciscans did, even while they were out in the world and at work. Now, maybe you might hear that there are some commonalities between St. Francis and this young man in the gospel reading that walks up to Jesus, right? Both are young, both are wealthy, and both are seeking something more than what they have. The young man in the gospel is devout, more devout than Francis was. Francis was baptized as a Christian, but he was raised in a largely sort of secular way. The young man in the gospel seems to have theological training. He knows the Torah. He knows what is expected of him as a devout and righteous man. And so when he comes and seeks out Jesus, he is asking a very earnest question, which is, what do I have to do to be saved? Now, Jesus doesn't seem to doubt the young man's intentions, and I don't think we should either. Sometimes we try to say that the young man is trying to trick Jesus, and that's more about saving ourselves from Jesus' judgment than it is about understanding why the young man showed up to talk to Jesus in the beginning. Right? So Jesus believes that this young man is sincere in his intention, and it is out of love for this young man that Jesus says, okay, you've kept the law. Now here is the radical challenge. Go sell what you own, give the money to the poor, and then come and follow me. Now in a lot of these conflicts that Jesus has with people in the Gospels, there's sort of the moment of conflict and then the people that are trying to challenge Jesus leave sort of grumbling off to stage left. But the young man here doesn't leave grumbling. He's not angry. He leaves grieving because there is something about the challenge that Jesus gives him that he just cannot do. Now, I think a lot of us try to hide from this passage. This is one of these passages from Jesus that's real uncomfortable, particularly to us in the modern age with all of our modern conveniences. We try to confine this one radical moment to just apply to this one particular person. But rather like our reading last week, Jesus isn't just applying it to the person that comes to challenge him. When he is with his disciples in private, he makes the teaching even harder by saying that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, we've done a lot to sort of try to soften that blow. We've talked about and maybe speculated that the eye of the needle is a gate in Jerusalem and Camels walking down narrow streets. Jesus meant for it to be ridiculous and absurd because the challenge of Christ, according to the world, is ridiculous and absurd. 
Jesus wants us to take notice because there is something very particular about wealth and possessions that make a life of a Christian difficult and impossible. Part of the issue is the more we have, the more sort of self-reliant we are, the more we rely on our ability to have friends and to make family and to take care of ourselves, and the further we are separated from the God that created us and the God on which our very existence depends. Remember, Francis, when he first heard that tender voice in the church, relied on his own resources to answer Jesus' call, right? He went and took his dad's stuff and sold it and tried to bring money to the church to rebuild it. But that wasn't what God was asking for him. God wanted Francis' whole life. And it's not until Francis realizes that he has to rely only on God that he could then give everything up and meet Jesus' challenge to rebuild God's church. And maybe that's what sends the devout man away grieving. He is devout, so we know that he gives and tithes and that he shares his money and takes care of his communities. But when he is directly challenged to sell everything, to break all of those connections that he had built, to leave that was too much. But Jesus gives us a bit of hope, right? Because he does say that for those that do follow him, who walk away from relying on their own power and wealth, and instead rely on God, that we do get a new family. That's maybe not the family of our choosing, because it's the family of the church. And the church is a funny thing, right? Because we don't actually pick who comes to church. God does. So we end up sort of yoked together in this wonderful variety of people of all sorts of backgrounds and races and genders and politics and whatever you want to think, all get tied to us because we follow Jesus. And it also means that we get persecutions and challenges. To live in a way that doesn't make sense to the world means that there are going to be times that the world is going to challenge you for doing that. To respond to the tender voice of Christ, as Francis did, is to follow a difficult and beautiful path. For the disciples, it's going to take them to Jerusalem. For some of them, it's going to take them to the foot of the cross. For others, it's going to take them to the point of realizing how they betrayed their friends. And for all of them, it's going to take them to the witness of the empty tomb. For Francis, it took him to rebuilding a church and then building up an order of preachers that went out into the world preaching the good news of God in Christ, rebuilding the church, relying on community and God, caring for the poor and the outcast. And for Francis, experiencing the awesome power of God in creation. Francis wrote about the sun and the moon as though they were his brothers. He saw God and animals. He preached sermons to trees or to birds and trees. He welcomed the wolf of Gibeah into the town and found reconciliation. Francis saw God everywhere because Francis let go of himself so that he could see God everywhere. But here's the important thing to remember. St. Francis, even as radically faithful as he was, did not gain his salvation because he came into that court and stripped off all of his father's goods. 
He didn't gain salvation because he rebuilt the church or because he fed people that were hungry. He didn't gain salvation because he founded the Franciscan order, which had hundreds and hundreds of people that follow it even still today. Just as it is impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, it is impossible for us, for St. Francis, for the rich young man in the gospel to save ourselves. But not for God to save us. Because with God, all things are possible, even the salvation of this fallen and broken world. For Francis, hearing the voice of Christ in that church was the first step of what was going to be a lifelong conversion of turning everything that was his and that was him over to God every day. And that is the challenge of discipleship, is to turn ourselves and our whole lives over to God for transformation. And so when Jesus says to the rich young man, go sell your stuff and come back and follow me, and he can't do it, Jesus is asking you similar questions today. What are you holding back from God? What is the thing that you need to let go so that you can more fully follow Jesus and see God in the world around you? What is holding you back? What is it that you are holding on to because you have decided it is impossible to let go? And then remember that while it's impossible for you, nothing is impossible for God. Francis would remember that day in that crumbling church by writing a prayer that many still use today. A prayer to say when you are in front of a cross or a crucifix or when you are trying to discern what God is asking for you in that particular moment. And it goes like this. Most high glorious God, enlighten the darkness of my heart and give me true faith, certain hope. Perfect charity, sense, and knowledge that I may carry out your holy and true command. Amen.